0: You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, October 28th, 2021. I'm Koda Babcock.
1: And I'm Ellie Shannon.
0: You're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On
1: today's show, I go over updates in campus news and discuss Halloween happenings in Fort Collins.
0: After that, Eliza Droter will update us on CSU's athletics. And then I'll speak to representatives from the city of Fort Collins about climate goals and sustainability in the city.
1: Then, Coda tells us about the new updates in Biden's infrastructure bill, and we hear from Eli Misgimmins about local historical architecture and literature.
0: After that, I give new information on COVID-19 and explain some updates on technology with the Theranos trial and Google.
1: Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Ellie Shannon with Campus News. CSU faculty received a $450,000 Carnegie grant to track the ways that foreign and national security policies affect local communities across the nation. According to Natalie Montesino of CSU's College News, Professors Peter Harris, Allison White, Yunsun Kim, and Program Director Sam Hoftelling are on the team that will lead this two-year project. The team will lead with graduate research Assistance, Department of Political Science, and the newly developed master's program in public policy and administration. CSU implemented a new trespass order for vaccine noncompliance for several hundred students. This is due to students not submitting COVID-19 vaccine documentation. An initial notice of noncompliance was sent out on September 7th, which also announced a deadline of 10 days from receiving the notice to submit information. Students were sent follow-up communications about how to declare an exemption on September 15th. For more information on this, go to thecollegian.com. CSU has a home game at Canvas Stadium on Saturday, October 30th. The team plays Boise State University, and costumes are allowed and encouraged. On to local news. Halloween tours are being offered at the historic 1879 Avery House in Fort Collins. According to Sammy Gentle of The Collegian, the tour will inform guests of historical Halloween facts and traditions. The tours will be gauged towards an older audience, since the house's goal is to give adults a fun alternative to Halloween than just costume parties at the bars. For more information on these tours, visit Poudre Landmarks Foundation website. A Loveland woman who shot her neighbor over a parenting dispute was sentenced to 32 years in prison last week. The woman, Tiara Kelly, is 37 years old and shot her neighbor five times after she didn't prove of her parenting. Kelly demonstrates regret after the incident, but investigators say she was cold after the attempted murder. The victim survived the attack. An auto repair shop called Huska Automotive is hosting a Halloween-themed blood drive October 29th from 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. It will be at the UC Health Garth England Blood Center in Fort Collins. Donors are being encouraged to come in costume, and any donor needs to be 18 or above. Huska Automotive has made this into a tradition, making this the 20th blood drive they've done. People who donate a pint of blood will receive a gift card to Cooper Smith's Ale, and all participants will have a chance to win a set of four Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company tires, according to Piper Russell of the Collegian. Thanks for listening to my news updates. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM.
2: Hey there! I'm Abby from the Collegian at Rocky Mountain Student Media, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU
3: Fort Collins.
4: My name is Eliza Drotart, and this is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, there was a close loss to the Utah State Aggies, 24-26 on Friday. The rushing leaders for this week were David Bailey, 30 attempts for 159 yards, and two separate rushing touchdowns. Quarterback Todd Santeo ran for 26 yards in eight attempts. The top receivers this week, Trey McBride, six receptions for 44 yards, Dante Wright with four catches for 71 yards, and Gary Williams with three catches for 80 yards and a touchdown. On the defense, there were eight sacks for 52 yards loss on the defense. Cameron Carter having six solo tackles and 14 total tackles and a sack for seven-yard loss. Daquan Jackson having eight solo tackles and 15 total tackles. Quarterback Todd Santeo threw for 289 yards, 18 for 29 on passes with a 62% completion rate. One touchdown, one interception, and was sacked once. Their next game is this Saturday at home against Boise State. In women's soccer, the girls tied 1-1 against Boise State in double overtime with a goal by Kristen Noonan. With that tie against Boise State, the girls clinch a spot in the Mountain West Soccer Championship. Their next match will be against Wyoming on Thursday at 3 o'clock. In women's volleyball, the girls beat San Diego State 3-2 and UNLV 3-0 in straight sets. Annie Sullivan and Kiara Lieber led in kills, with Sullivan leading in total attacks. Sierra Pritchard led in assists and blocking assists. And Alexa Romeliotis led in digs, and she was named the Mountain West Defensive Player of the Week The team now leads the Mountain West standings, and their next match is Thursday night against Air Force in Colorado Springs. In cross-country, in the Nutty Wisconsin Invitational, the girls placed 6th and the men placed 10th. Their next event will be the Mountain West Conference. In men's golf, the team placed 14 at the golf club in Georgia Collegiate. In women's tennis, at the beach tennis tournament, Bushkova and Mahajavec won in straight sets to take the IT regional champs title. They will be heading to the New Mexico Fall Invite this weekend. In Women's Swim and Dive, the girls won against Idaho, University of Denver, U-M-A-R-Y, and Colorado State of Mines. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net to get student tickets for volleyball, football, basketball, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. Today,
0: I'm joined by Adele McDaniel and Honore Depue to discuss Fort Collins' climate goals, which the city exceeded in 2020. So can you discuss your roles in leading the city towards a carbon-neutral and carbon-negative future?
3: Sure. Um, my name is Adele McDaniel, and I'm a senior sustainability specialist on the city's climate team. And my working title is to be an environmental data analyst. So I manage our greenhouse gas inventories and related performance measurement uh, pieces for our department.
5: And my name is Honore Depew. I'm the climate program manager for the city of Fort Collins. Um, So I get to support a team of um, four individuals who work on aspects from data analysis to engagement, uh, to resilience and adaptation, and to our municipal sustainability work.
0: All right. And then why exactly is the city exceeding its 2020 goal important for our residents and for the state of Colorado at large?
5: So the climate crisis is an existential threat to everyone across the planet, our country, and our little community here in Northern Colorado. And our um, community of Fort Collins and our city council have uh, repeatedly expressed the importance of leadership in this issue, dating all the way back to the 1990s when the first climate action plan was adopted and, and reaffirmed numerous times throughout. Uh, Most recently, the city council adopted some very aggressive goals for uh, climate change reduction for the the mitigation part, meaning the reduction of what we put into the atmosphere. And they adopted those goals in 2015, setting a target of 20% below 2005 baseline by 2020. That's what we've exceeded now and we're really excited to be sharing out. The next benchmark is 80% below those 2005 levels by 2030, and then ultimately being carbon neutral by 2050.
0: All right, and then many residents were staying in their home for the majority of 2020. So how do you all think that that influenced the results for 2020's um, emissions?
3: Absolutely, so there are a few really clear ways in which um, people staying at home and generally just being Um, in their vehicles less and in office buildings um, a little less has has impacted our greenhouse gas inventory. primarily in terms of that reduced vehicle use so the um, those reductions in vehicle use were about 14 percent from um, 2019 to 2020 was about a 14 percent reduction in vehicle miles traveled or like just how much time people were using their cars to get around um, which resulted in which is about the same as a 3% reduction in our greenhouse gas inventory. So part of that 24% reduction is 3% from the pandemic impacts and isn't anticipated to last from that same effect moving forward. Um, some people have been curious about energy impacts since people, of course, were spending so much more time in their homes and not in commercial buildings. So energy use didn't really decrease because of that. It really, just shifted from commercial over to residential. So there, that didn't contribute to the decrease very much, or at all, really. Um, and then we know that waste significantly increased in 2020. So uh, about by one pound per person, um, per yeah. So that hopefully gives a sense. But waste has very different. Um, impacts outside of emissions, but obviously that also contributed to our greenhouse gas emissions too.
0: And then after being informed by um, those changes in waste and changes in energy use and emissions, um, what do you think individuals and organizations need to do in order to stay on top of the city's goals?
5: Well, it really is up to all of us to do our part. There are things that are happening sort of behind the scenes in terms of Uh, You know, our focus on converting from um, dirty energy to clean energy and our uh, Platte River Power Authority energy electricity provider has um, committed, along with the city, to uh, 100 percent renewable electricity by 2030. And that's really wonderful. And at the same time, there are many um, individual changes that we all need to make. I would um, point your listeners to the shift campaign. Uh, which is an engagement tool that we use to try and encourage people to, you know, choose uh, transit or bicycles or walking one day a week at least, and to think about shifting the way that we use water and energy and electricity in our homes. And you can find many different ideas for how to get engaged and and help lead these climate solutions together at our website at um, fcgov.com slash action. It's like FC is in fortcollinsgov.com slash climate action.
0: All right. And then going back to the more data aspects, um, was all of Fort Collins, including like personal homes and um, business use, included in this recording? Or is it more related to how the local government was running, how certain neighborhoods are running?
3: Yeah, great question. So our community inventory covers the electricity, natural gas, vehicle use, um, waste, water and industrial emissions from across like everything that's within our city limits. So that that really covers everything. And then our municipal inventory, which reported a 44 percent decrease in 2020, um, covers our organizational emissions. So like what are the city buildings using and what um, do like city transportation emissions look like from buses and fleet vehicles and things like that?
0: All right, and then how does Fort Collins meeting this goal um, in 2020 really set us up to exceed future goals in 2030 and
3: 2050? It definitely sets us up with a a great, um, yeah, just a great uh, another step towards progress. As you know, getting to the 80% reduction of 2030 is going to take a huge amount of effort and transformation, as Anore said, from everyone in the community, organizations, and individuals. So it it shows that we can do it and that we're on the right track. And it doesn't mean that we can just stop working towards it now just because we've exceeded the 2020 goal. And Honore, please feel free to add in anything.
5: Yeah, in, in reducing another, um, you know, what is that, 54%, um, over the or 56 percent over the next nine years um, this is where we really need to accelerate and really look for breakthroughs not just in technology but in the way that we uh, arrange ourselves in our community and the way that we take care of our needs and and support our businesses to have a, a green economy um, the three critical pathways that we've identified to really, accelerate those emission drawdowns, that reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, um, are around our transportation infrastructure, helping to move people to more active modes of transportation and reducing the dependence on uh, motor vehicles, a particular internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, the second critical pathway is around energy usage, and especially our homes and businesses, and making them way more efficient and avoiding all the loss that we have in our heating and cooling efforts. And the third is around waste. But specifically around trying to take those organic materials, the, the compostable materials out of landfills and getting them back into a circular economy. And In addition to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we're also really trying to center equity in our work, trying to recognize that it's the people who will implement solutions and it's not just something the city can do by itself and that those impacts disproportionately uh, affect different members of our community in large part depending on socioeconomic or other backgrounds and, and identities. So equity, greenhouse gas reduction, and then increasingly adaptation and resilience unfortunately recognizing that many of these changes are already here and we're already facing increased heat wildfires flooding etc
0: and then um speaking on transportation a bit why exactly did the city choose to prioritize that in particular for fort collins which already has a really strong reputation as a biking city and as a really healthy city where people walk a lot
3: from a data perspective, our the transportation sector of our inventory is going to be increasingly the biggest um, piece of our emissions. And so, despite us being a really uh, a leader in our in um, Fort Collins in transit and in um, pedestrian and bicyclist friendly um, infrastructure, really we have still a long way to go in getting people out of their cars. And as you know, the U.S. many U.S. cities aren't quite as adept at um, getting people around without cars, maybe as other European cities or other cities across the world. And so compared to other US cities, we're doing really great and we still have a long way to go. It's kind of the both and there. Um, And as we know, it has a great impact on greenhouse gas emissions, but getting people out of their cars with less commute time or being able to be out on a bike more or um, using the public transit facilities also increases quality of life for a lot of people who otherwise would be spending a lot of time in a car. And so there are just a lot of benefits to that system beyond just greenhouse gases.
0: All right. And then with um, quality of life in mind, with Fort Collins already increasing quality of life and climate goals at the same time, how do you think that that's going to push the city to continue to strive for goals that are higher than maybe other cities in the U.S., even if they are among the best?
5: Well, I think that our our city will continue to lead in this space. You know, we're looked at as a leader nationally and internationally, especially for a city of our size. And um, increasingly, our efforts are around looking at whole systems and the whole community rather than just narrowly focusing on climate solutions. Uh, it's an and. And so, um, if you've looked at the Our Climate Future Plan that was recently adopted this year actually by city council. Again, you see that people are really at the center of the big ideas in there. We call them big moves and and the next moves are the implementation strategies to move that forward. And they're all surrounding this idea of making this place better for everyone and recognizing that if we're not meeting our basic needs, we're not gonna also be able to draw down our emissions and really act with resolve on climate.
0: All right. And then if anyone wants to get involved with the city of Fort Collins in really helping to volunteer with this work, continue pushing the city to new climate goals, um, how can they get involved?
3: As Honoré mentioned earlier, you can always get involved in the SHIFT campaign, which you can find on our climate action pages. This is um, primarily for individuals and community groups to take on those actions and leadership themselves.
5: If people want to get involved with helping to formulate and, and act on climate solutions for the city of Fort Collins, um, a great place to start is shiftfoco.com. That's shift as in shift gears. Shiftfoco.com is a great way to track and engage around um, individual behavior change, either at home or at work or at school. Um, and then again, the website that we use uh, is um, fcgov.com slash CAP, or Climate Action.
0: All right. And then either do either of you have anything else to add about this topic?
5: I would just say how um, amazing it is to live and work in a community like Fort Collins that really um, values well-being and climate action, environmentalism, and social justice, and that all together, you know, we can make a difference. And really, I believe that youth are the ones, you know, the people who are leading in this space most because... Um, young people are who are inheriting the next generation of opportunity and challenges. And so we all need to take action now in order to make it a better future that we all can envision our climate future.
0: Again, that was Adele McDaniel and Henri Depew from the city of Fort Collins discussing climate goals for 2020, 2030, and 2050. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5. Five FM. We'll be right back on the Rocky Mountain Review.
2: for KCSU comes from the Fort Collins Book Fest, October 22nd through the 24th. The Fort Collins Book Fest features slasher stories, romance novels, poetry, and more. The event is open to the public and offers more than 35 award-winning authors and speakers, including festival headliner Callie Fajardo-Anstein, author of Sabrina and Corina, horror writer Stephen Graham Jones, and experimental poet Anne Waldman. Attendees can enjoy book talks, writing workshops, and author readings, both in person or streaming online. More information is available at focobookfest.org.
0: And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights for Thursday, October 28th. If you miss any part of today's episode, be sure to check us out at Spotify by searching KCSU News or anywhere else where you get podcasts. Paid family leave was removed from Biden's infrastructure and spending bill. According to a team of writers at the Associated Press, alongside family leave, a tax on billionaires is also expected to be removed. Progressive Democrats originally intended to reduce paid family leave to four weeks instead of the intended 12 weeks for new parents to gain approval from moderate Democrats, specifically Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Most daycares will not accept infants under the age of six weeks, meaning that without paid family leave, new parents are expected to lose income for over a month unless their workplace has a policy that enables them to take six paid weeks off. Manchin also discussed the billionaire's tax proposal with members of Congress, saying he believed it was unfairly targeting the wealthy. Due to a severe rise in drug overdose deaths, the Biden administration is now working on new strategies to save the lives of drug users. According to Brian Mann at National Public Radio, this includes previously controversial concepts like providing clean syringes and places to dispose of them to IV drug users. The Centers for Disease Control predicts that roughly 100,000 people died from drug overdose in the past year, which is believed to have worsened due to the spread of fentanyl use. Clean needle exchange programs are expected to not only prevent drug-related deaths, but also to prevent diseases such as HIV and hepatitis from spreading among drug users. Additionally, these programs can help those who use needles for diabetes treatment or hormone therapy to have affordable access to supply of needles. While safe consumption sites are often an important topic in discussions on safe drug use and harm reduction, the federal government has not taken a position on these sites in part due to their controversial nature. Data suggests that these locations work in reducing death and disease transmission, but these programs are often opposed by community members due to people worrying about bringing active IV drug users into their neighborhoods or if they feel uncomfortable about government safety programs for those violating local and federal laws. Los Angeles started planning a memorial for the 1871 Chinese Massacre, which ended in the death of 18 Chinese people, which was the tenth of the city's total Chinese population at that time. At the time, Los Angeles had just under 6,000 people in its population, and a gunfight occurred between two Chinese groups that rivaled each other. After a white police officer was killed while intervening, CNN says a mob of around 500 destroyed Chinatown and killed members of the small Chinese community. Despite the number of deaths and the overall devastation of this massacre, Los Angeles hasn't widely taught about it in schools, and it wasn't recognized beyond a small plaque. Former L.A. City Council member Michael Wu, who said he had no knowledge of the event growing up, is part of the effort to create a memorial site commemorating the loss. Wu was unaware of the massacre until reading a book on the massacre in 2012. The memorial is expected to be different than a typical statue, and L.A. dedicated $250,000 into the creation of a meaningful memorial for those killed in the massacre. The United States issued its first passport using the X gender marker Wednesday. According to Colleen Slevin at the Associated Press, a 63-year-old intersex person from Fort Collins, Colorado says they were the recipient, although the State Department did not confirm or deny this. While the option is not expected to be widely offered until next year, This marks a step in the right direction for transgender and intersex activists who have fought for years to identify themselves properly in legal documents. Dana Zim, who said they are the recipient, has been an advocate for intersex people, or those born with internal or external sex characteristics that align with multiple sexes, and was raised as a boy despite having ambiguous sexual characteristics. Intersex people, including Zim, often undergo several invasive surgeries to be medically aligned with one gender, often without the consent of the parents or the intersex person themselves. That's all for national news. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Hello, all,
2: and welcome to this Local History Podcast. My name is Eli Muskimmins, and I will be your host today. Here in this episode, I will be talking about something that has affected many things in a city in northern Colorado called Fort Collins, from local architecture to religion to the very food that we eat. Fort Collins. This is the history of the local Hispanic community. Since this is a huge history that covers over a century and involves thousands of people, I obviously can't break it down in just one short podcast here. However, I will attempt to cover some of it by talking about some people and events that have been particularly important to the development of this key part of the Fort Collins community. Though all the lives of the Hispanic immigrants could and did vary a great deal from person to person, I want you to imagine that you are in the life of a common working-class immigrant. In this life, you and maybe six, seven siblings live together with your parents in a house that has only three or four small rooms. You work hard, doing labor that many consider to be low, farming, construction, maybe working in a factory. You don't speak the language of most of the residents of the affluent communities across the river, and you aren't even the same religion as most of them. Your family and those of your community are from a country and culture that the locals don't understand and most people don't expect you to stay for more than a few years. Because of this and many other so-called reasons, you and your family are looked down upon and denied many basic public services and denied services from several private citizens like access to stores. Realize now that this isn't 1860 in the South or even 1920. This was life for many in the Hispanic community of Fort Collins, especially those who lived in the communities known as Las Tres Colonias, or the Three Colonies, until the 1970s, when they were finally incorporated into Fort Collins proper and received basic amenities such as gas, sanitation, and electricity from the city. Despite the many contributions to the economy and culture of Fort Collins, many Hispanics were heavily discriminated against. Despite these problems, however, the people living within the communities of Las Tres Colonias of Alta Vista, Buckingham, and Anderson were able to rise above the adversity and discrimination to survive and to thrive. One of the families that helped make this possible was the Romero family, who lived in the house that has since been converted into a museum called El Museo de Las Tres Colonias, or the Museum of the Three Colonies. John and Inés Rivera Romero and their family moved to Fort Collins shortly before the beginning of the Great Depression in 1927 from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Like most, they came to the area looking for work to help support their family, and like most in the Hispanic community, worked for the Great Western Sugar Company that produced the white gold, or beet sugar, that formed the foundation of the local economy at the time. While Great Western and their farmers provided most of the regular jobs for the Hispanic community, They were often less than honest in their dealings with this community. Throughout much of the time period, most of the Hispanic community did not speak English well enough to be able to understand legal contracts that they had signed in order to work for Great Western and its farmers. Because of this, many of the farmers in the company were able to find excuses to pay the Hispanic workers late or less than what the workers had originally thought, or even to deny payment altogether. This was when John Romero stepped in to help and become a pillar of the community. Being from Santa Fe and being bilingual, Señor Romero was able to become a legal notary. Despite having to work hard for his own family in such difficult jobs, such as working on the railroad or also working for Great Western like most others, Señor Romero realized that he could do more for the Hispanic community. He had seen the problems and abuses that many in his community faced and wanted to help and was able to do so as the area's only Hispanic notary. In this position, he had the legal training and skills to be able to advise and help others of his community against some of the abuses that they faced from the farmers and the company. Yet the Hispanic community faced more than just barriers to economic prosperity. They also faced barriers to their practice of religion. Most members of the community were Catholic, which is a religion that has long faced difficulties and discrimination within the United States. Fearing what is sometimes called popery or the fear of blind obedience to the Pope, leading to the Pope having undue control of Catholics. Many throughout the history of the United States have pushed back against any Catholic presence. Fort Collins was no different. The first Catholic mass in Fort Constant happened until 1878, yet the Hispanic community was doubly troubled here. They were largely Catholic, and they also spoke Spanish. So while Catholic mass was happening, the Hispanic community did not get a church dedicated to Spanish-speaking Catholics until the construction of the Holy Family Catholic Church in 1929. Like most things, this construction was largely undertaken by the Hispanic community, and they had to do it by themselves. The original construction of the church was largely funded by donations, contributions, and fundraisers from the Hispanic community. People who were so poor that they did not receive plumbing or gas or electricity until the 1970s saved their little money to donate to the construction community members would make mops lunch baskets food or anything else they could and then auction them off to interested buyers with this fundraising and donations the holy family catholic church was built with its first spanish-speaking minister being a priest from quebec named joseph Pierre with such grassroots organizations the hispanic religious community kept growing and thriving These influences that the Hispanic community has had throughout its history on the overall character of Fort Collins can be seen every day. As we go through streets and see adobe buildings and eat the Hispanic-influenced cuisine or see the religious diversity, it is important to remember those who struggled and overcame the challenges of life and society to bring this diversity and influence. I encourage everybody to learn more about these influences and to go to the Museo de las Tres Colonias at 425 10th Street, Fort Collins, Colorado, are to join the museum's Facebook page and discover more about the history of the Hispanic community in Fort Collins. Thank you. Would you like to be a part of a rising industry on your college campus? Well, you should check out KCSU and their podcast department. 90.5 KCSU is Colorado State University's student-run radio station where you can be involved with music, news, sports, and even production and podcasting. Come on down into the basement of the Laurie Student Center and talk to a staff member today. Just remember to follow the music.
0: I'm Kota Babcock, and this is COVID-19 Updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports that 89.3% of on-campus students and employees are vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. Less than 2% of students and less than 5% of staff have not yet reported either vaccination or a COVID-19 exemption to the university. CSU reports over 3,900 cases of COVID-19, with nine new cases yesterday among students, staff, and faculty at the university. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Masks are required in all indoor public spaces in the county, regardless of vaccination status. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated, or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Monitor your health and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concern over exposure or symptoms. Larimer County reports over 40,000 COVID-19 cases and over 318 residents died of COVID-19 in the county, which reports a seven-day case rate of over 320 cases per 100,000 residents. 97 COVID-19 patients receive treatment in area hospitals, and intensive care units report 115% utilization, meaning there is no room for the treatment of critical care patients. The state of Colorado reports over 733,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 8,200 deaths. Over 7.7 million vaccine doses were administered in the state as of this morning, and over 3.5 million Coloradans are fully immunized against COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control reports over 45.5 million cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., with around 738,000 total deaths. 191 million people are fully vaccinated in the U.S., with around 80% of the adult population and 66% of the total population being fully vaccinated. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, for tech news. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to Tech News for Thursday. Make sure to also check us out wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to KCSU News on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. A ransomware group, likely from Russia, claims to have hacked the National Rifle Association. According to Alan Sitterman at the Associated Press, the NRA is the most powerful gun rights organization in the United States and a major funder of U.S. political campaigns, particularly those of conservative politicians. The Russian group, called Grief, published what's believed to be NRA files on the dark web related to grants received by the organization. While the NRA does not discuss matters of security to the public, one anonymous source within the NRA said that the organization's email system had issues this week. AP says this is a sign that they may have been victim to this ransomware attack. The DeVos family, including former U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, invested in Theranos in part because Theranos devices did not require Food and Drug Administration approval. According to Nicole Westman at The Verge, Lisa Peterson, who handled the DeVos family's investments, said that the lack of need for FDA approval made her believe the di- devices were more likely to work. Peterson testified Wednesday during court proceedings against Elizabeth Holmes, who founded Theranos. Theranos did not need FDA approval as they fit under the category of lab-developed tests, which are developed and used within a single lab. The Verge says that while this isn't necessarily a bad thing, lab-developed tests should not have been seen as more credible than an FDA-approved testing method. The DeVos family is believed to have put their $100 million investment in because they thought it was interesting and did not want to lose a chance to invest, rather than because they understood the science behind the company's documents and devices. Google now has an option to remove images of minors from search results on the platform. According to Bill Chappelle at National Public Radio, the new policy was added to Google Wednesday and allows parents and caregivers to request that a minor's images are removed from the search engine. NPR says this policy comes after Google's August announcement that Google products would have a new focus on protecting minors. The process to remove images starts with a form where the caregiver enters the URL of the image they want taken down, along with potential search terms to find it. In the announcement for the policy, Google reminded caregivers that removing the image from Google's results would not necessarily take it off the internet, and those images can still be found on other search engines and the original site it was posted on. That's all for tech news highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. And now, for the weather. was cool and sunny with a high of 64 and a low of 35. Friday, you can expect sunny skies again with a high of 70 and a low of 39. Moving into the weekend, clouds will roll in Saturday with a high of 70 and a low of 34. Sunday will cool off to a high of 45 with a low of 30 with scattered rain and snow showers throughout the day. Monday, we'll see more snow with a high of 42 and a low of 26. And Tuesday warms up to a high of 50 and a low of 29 with partly cloudy skies. And for Wednesday, you'll have to tune in this upcoming Tuesday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel.
1: And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now.
0: We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Eric, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsey Johnson, Eliza Droeder, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Krueger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.